You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! My mother was a punk rock icon. People often ask me if she was a good mum. It's hard to know what to say. One, two, three, four! Do you think you're a rebel in today's society? Yeah, I suppose I am a bit. <laughs> Holly had her own ideas about everything. She didn't follow trends. She was a woman of colour in an industry full of white middle-class men. Nobody else was singing what Holly was singing about. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the music. I actually started singing because of her. I must have been about four years old when I realised something wasn't right. The constant cycle of elation and despair... I remember her coming off stage and crying her eyes out. It seemed like she'd been through some trauma, and music was a way of dealing with that. Everything else reflects everything else. The music reflects what's happening around you. People started saying she'd gone mad, but she felt she was going through a spiritual awakening. I'm like an actress. On stage, I'm one thing, and off stage, I'm something else. I just consider myself as a person first. I went through a period where I rejected everything that my mum cared about. But now I find solace in retracing her footsteps. The world is playing catch-up with polystyrene, not the other way around. Hey folks, welcome to a special series of podcasts. This is covering South by Southwest 2021. I was very fortunate to be able to participate as a member of the press. Yeah, I was surprised too. Over the next few days, I will be covering some films that I was able to see for the festival, as well as sharing some interviews with some of the filmmakers. First up, Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché. This is a documentary about the singer Polystyrene from the band X-Ray Specs. Born Marianne Joan Elliott said, The film is co-directed and narrated by her daughter Celeste Bell. It's a terrific look at one of the leading voices of punk rock. I had the pleasure of speaking with Miss Bell about her book, Diglo, the Polystyrene Story, and her documentary. I know that you had also written a book. Can you tell me a little bit about the writing of the book and when that took place? At the end of 2016, I approached Zoe Howe, who is the co-writer of the book. She's a really great writer of, uh, and she's written many music biographies. Um, and she also interviewed me in uh, 2008 for a book that she was writing at the time called How's Your Dad? Um, Living in the Shadow of a Rockstar Parent. And that's how I met Zoe and we kept in touch you know, after my mum passed away, I inherited um, a substantial archive of artwork and, and um, also had diary entries. So I was keen to put the diary entries together with the artwork and, and get that published because that's something my mum wanted to do is get the diary entries published. So I approached Zoe and asked her if she wanted to work on that with me as a co-writer. And she was up for it, which was great. Very quickly after that, Zoe introduced me to Paul Sung, who um, is the co-director of I'm a Cliché. And he was looking to make a a music documentary. And he asked Zoe, who he'd met on a few Q&As, he asked her for um, a a recommendation or a suggestion for a film. She gave him three ideas 
And the third one was the project that we were working on already. And Paul, you know, he just immediately was like, I want to do a polystyrene film. And that's kind of how it all started from the book to the film. When did you realize that your mum was a star and an artist as opposed to like your next door neighbor's mum? You know, I never really felt like that about my mum because, you know, she was always just my mum as far as I was concerned. But I was I was aware from a very young age that she was, let's say, more well known than most people's mums because people would sometimes stop her and speak to her, you know, people that we didn't know. And that happened, you know, all the time. And so I was born in the early 80s. So when I was very small, it was more, you know, she was still more famous. So there's quite a lot of people, you know, stopping her. And she would take me to do interviews and things like that. So I would I would be there. I remember even a TV interview that we, she did for like Italian television when I was very small and, you know, radio interviews and, and that kind of thing. There was still quite a lot of interest in the 80s. Yeah, I was very much aware of it. And it's all I knew. So I just, you know, took it for granted. It was just sort of what she did, you know, and I was very much aware of that. What was that working relationship like with Paul as far as putting the documentary together? You know, this film was a mammoth undertaking. So it really took a a, a big team. You know, there's Paul and I, but also obviously there was Zoe um, was involved from the start. We had um, a great editor that we worked with, Zanna. Anna Ward Dixon producer. We also have we have our British producer Rebecca, and we also have our American producer Matthew. And you know, they say it takes a, a village to raise a child, so it takes like a, a town to make a film. And uh, there were so many elements, you know, um, and also our, our cinematographer Nick Ward is just amazingly talented. There are many sort of layers um, and the first one and the first stage really was interviews. So we interviewed many, many, many people, people who knew my mum, friends, family, and and also people who were influenced by my mum. And and then there was mine, you know, my narration. So my writing. So that was, that formed, you know, a significant part of the script, um, and that was sort of how, how we started with the script was really the interviews. And then we built we built the script around that. Um, so there were just like lots of stages apart from, you know, the obvious like shooting and editing. There was so much more that we had to we had to do. So it was great that we had a, you know, a good team to do that. You know, all these all these various tasks you made a very interesting decision with the documentary not to make it just a talking head documentary. You do so many interviews, but you don't really see those folks on film. Where did that idea come from? So that was Paul's idea. He was really adamant at the start that he didn't want talking heads in the film. I was keen as well not to have talking heads because, you know, it's quite formulaic. That's kind of what people expect when they see a documentary, especially music documentaries. Um, you know, they always have talking heads. However, we 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 have learned that there's a reason why you know documentary makers, filmmakers, they they use talking heads is because it's a relatively inexpensive way of getting that interview testimony and also visually having something to see. So because we didn't have the talking heads, it meant that we kind of shot ourselves in the foot in terms of budget because we had to then use a lot of archive footage, which is um, very expensive. But creatively, it was absolutely the right decision. It just meant that it took us that much longer to finish the film because we had to raise so much more finance. The other thing that I really enjoyed was that you did put yourself into the film. Was that always the plan or did that come later? Yeah, that definitely came later. So initially, you know, the only person that you would see would be my mum or, you know, other people, but in the, you, through archive footage, not contemporary footage. So the contemporary footage initially was going to be tracking shots in locations, um, in important locations in my mum's life. And then you would hear my voice, but you wouldn't see me. But we had a suggestion from a producer 
who, you know, she we were talking to her about the project and she just suggested, you know, she just kind of was strong. She had a strong feeling about, you know, why we weren't seeing me and she felt that might be lacking. So um, we decided, you know, relatively early on, before we started shooting really, we decided that we would try to put me in, in the film and it just worked. It worked a lot better just having that, it would have been a bit empty, I think, without without me sort of there. And also hearing my voice is so prominent throughout the film that I think the audience would they would want to see me. Because the other interview testimonies, there are so many voices. I don't think you miss seeing the, the person, but um when they're speaking so briefly. But I think when you're hearing my narration throughout, I think you would the audience wants to see wants to see who that is. So it it was a good decision again to to put me in, I think. This really showed you at a very vulnerable spot and just talking about the relationship that you had with your mom. I mean, nobody really has a good time talking about the relationships they have with their folks, or at least nobody that I know. So how is that kind of opening up to being part of this doc? You know, the way we did it made it quite, you know, not too difficult because First of all, I spent a lot of time writing what I was going to say and rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. Um, so it was quite a long process. In the film, you see me in lo- on, in different locations. You see me in a studio, but you never, you don't see me speaking. That is my pre, you know, recorded VO, and and recording VO in a studio in a booth is much easier than you know, direct to camera. So that was, I think that made it a lot easier. Um, we did try actually getting me doing some direct to camera speaking and it, it definitely didn't work as well because, yeah, you are put on the spot. And um, I'm I'm definitely someone that's quite like umming and ahhing, you know, so it really wasn't working as much better with the pre-recorded um, VO over the, you know, the shots of me walking around. I thought your mom had made audio recordings of herself. It took me so long to realize that it was Ruth Nega doing the uh, voiceover of her. How was that working with her? I mean, she is such a talented actress and, you know, a real pro. So she kind of came into the studio one day, just one day. She basically nailed it. So, you know, she was, it was really great. Um, we're so lucky that she she agreed to do it because that was another dilemma right at the start of making the film was how we were going to bring those diary entries to life. You know, we really wanted to have as close to my mum's voice as possible. And it takes, I think, um, you know, a trained actress to to do that. You know, you talked about how you inherited the archive of your mom's stuff. Are you still cataloging everything? Are you still discovering things as you're making this documentary? Definitely, because, um, you know, everything was it is really disorganized. It still is, to be honest. So, um, And there's so much there, so much. So you're always, every time I open it up and go through the various items, I'm learning something each time. You know, they're always, I'm always like, oh, you know, I don't remember seeing this, that kind of thing, because there's, there's so much and it hasn't been properly catalogued. I haven't catalogued everything yet. So that's a future job um, <laughs> still in progress. What were some of the most surprising things that you found while doing this? I mean, I found a lot that was surprising because um, mainly through interviewing people. You know, I had a lot of knowledge before I had, you know, my mum, I'd spoken to my mum many times about various things. And also my other family members, like my grandmother, she she knew a lot as well. You know, there was so much that I didn't know. And I was only able to find that out by interviewing people that knew her during that period when she was in the band. And there were, you know, many sort of revelations um, that came out through those interviews and, and ended up in the film. I'm always curious about people's memories as far as that idea of people remembering different things in different ways. Did you run across a lot of those instances where you were hearing different versions of the same story? Absolutely. Um, with the book, for example, the way we we structured the book was quite similar to the film. And we had lots of voices, you know, talking about sort of similar things. Um, but what we wanted to do is to show 
the reader or the audience in the case of the film that I'm very much a believer that there isn't anyway uh, one truth. Although that sounds a bit like Trump, you know, what did he say? Like post-truth or like... Right. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. But I think, you know, there, everyone has um, their version of the truth, especially when they're talking about the past events. We all remember things differently. So, for example, my mum would have remembered, you know, she would have remembered things probably very differently than her mum remembered things, you know, about her childhood. So that's why for me it's really important to have as many voices as possible because then the the audience or the reader, in case of, in the case of the book, they can decide or they can make their own truth from all of that information. I studied history at university, so when you're trying to determine what is historical fact, the way you do it is through analysing sources. And uh, the more sources you have, the greater sort of understanding you can get to about what 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 might have happened. But it's never a hundred percent factual. You're still building a story there retrospectively. You talked about how you had to license the footage of. Sounds like you had to license a lot of footage of your own mother. Did you have problems finding the footage? And also, how was it when it came to licensing the music? That was a huge part, huge part of um, the filmmaking process was the licensing of, of archive footage and music. It's very laborious to find um, archive. And uh, the music was, was, you know, I knew everything that was out there. Um, so I did the music supervision myself. So usually, you know, you'll have a music supervisor on this type of project who will source the music and then will clear the rights. So I, I did all of that because I managed the estate. So I have all the relationships with the publishing company and record labels. On the archive side, we had access through my mum's ex-manager, we had access uh, to his footage because he was a filmmaker. So he shot a lot of footage. So that was great. But then, yes, we had to go to, you know, big companies like Getty, BBC, um, ITN. These are all sort of British um, broadcasting companies and archive houses to then find and clear all the other archives that we used. That was a big, you know, undertaking to that whole process. It took us, um, I would say, overall, it must have taken at least a year just to, to do that. You've published a book. You've made a documentary. I'm curious, what's next for you? I mean, are, are you going to now utilize the history degree and, and work more like a day job kind of thing? Or do you have another creative project on the horizon? Well, I've been teaching for a long time, so that's something I can always go back to, which is why, you know, it was a good, it's a good career um, for anyone who wants to do anything creative um, as well, because it pays the bills, kind of, <laughs> barely. But, but yeah, no, I want to do another, another film probably, and um, or, or series, who knows. This time I would like to focus or, or delve deeper into the, the history of the the Hare Krishnas, the Hare Krishna movement, which I was brought up in, um, my mum was a member of, and look at that. In you know, there's a little bit about that in the film, but it's a story. It's a much bigger story. It's a huge story. I think it's a really fascinating story. So that's that's kind of the next project. Well, if you um, ever get over here to the States to do that, we have a place here in Detroit called the Manugian Mansion, which the Harry Krishnas bought years and years ago. I'm not sure if they still own it, but that was quite a to-do when that happened. So if you ever make it to Detroit, let me know, and I'll uh, buy you a drink sometime. Oh, that would be great. In fact, I, I have I have a memory of um, some Detroit connection. I think there was a guru or, or something, an American guru that was – was from Detroit. Um, in fact, I think Ford, you know, the Ford family, I think one of the Ford heirs is a prominent Hare Krishna. Celeste, where's the best place to keep up with you and keep up with the documentary? Social media. Um, we have a Facebook page, um, Polystyrenomic Cliche Facebook page. We have an Instagram page and uh, we have a website as well, polystyrenefilm.com. And yeah, that, that's the best way. And in terms of um, American, US uh, screenings, you know, we're, tr we're 
premiering at South by Southwest. Also some more festivals. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, um, if they're like <laughs> public yet, you know, um, but there'll be more festivals in the US and Canada. We are hoping to find, we, we have a, a, a distributor already, so we're hoping to announce uh, soon like some screenings and physical screenings would be fantastic. Um, I'm not sure what the situation is in every state. It seems to be different, you no, know, in terms of cinemas. Like, Are they open in Detroit? Or? They are, but I'm still not comfortable enough to go back. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> we 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 want to wait for everyone to be comfortable, you know, <laughs> to go back. But I, I I reckon in the summer, this summer, it, you know, it should, there should be outdoor screenings, that kind of thing. Yeah, it'd be a great movie for outdoor screenings, I think. Yeah, and um, and events. You know, we'd like to do some music events um, around the screenings. You know, so more more event now with everything that's gone on, the traditional cinema route is not for us. You know, we'd we'd rather do like screen, you know, alongside virtual events and virtual sort of screenings. We'd like to do, um, yeah, more events that you know, like mini festivals, that kind of thing. Well, thank you so much, Celeste, for your time. This has been great. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I don't have an interview to go along with Executive Order, which is directed by Lazaro Ramos. It's a Brazilian film that reminds me a little bit of the film A Day Without a Mexican and a little bit of Sorry to Bother You. The premise is that Executive Order 1888, of course that's the year that slavery was outlawed in Brazil, is passed where anyone who identifies as quote high melanin unquote can be sent back to Africa. At first it's an offer then it's an order. We follow two high melanin guys who disobey the order and the reaction to their resistance. If you get a chance to see Executive Order, I would highly recommend it. Shifting Gears, The Lost Sons is a documentary from Ursula McFarlane, which stars Paul Franzak. When Franzak was a kid, he found out about a kidnapping where his mother and father had their baby stolen from the hospital. This begins an odyssey for Franzak where he tries to determine if he was the baby stolen or if he's someone else. The film is very compelling, though I kept thinking about other documentaries I've seen recently, like Tim Wardell's Three Identical Strangers from 2018 and Zach Marion's Where She Lies from 2020. The Lost Sons was produced by CNN, so it should have a pretty good release once it's done with the festival run. I was very happy to speak with Jacob Gentry about his latest film, Broadcast Signal Intrusion. I saw a second film, The Signal, back in 2007 when I went up to the Fantasia Film Festival over in Montreal. The Signal was about a mysterious broadcast which drives anyone who sees it into a rage. I think this might have been a few years before Stephen King's Cell book and a oh, horrible movie of the same name. Anyway... I can see a dotted line kind of between the signal and broadcast signal intrusion, which is about someone hijacking a few broadcasts, which may or may not be tied to the deaths of women right around the same time. It's a very taut thriller that didn't do what I was expecting. I highly recommend it. I was very fortunate to speak with Mr. Gentry, and I gotta say, pretty flattered to find out that he's a fan of the projection booth. Jacob, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this. Oh, thank you. I'm a big fan of your uh, podcast. I've been listening to it for years. So it's actually really bizarre right now to see your face. I've never, I did never knew what you looked like <laughs> to your podcast. For, I mean, how long has it been? It's been many years now, right? You've been 10 years, 10 years. We just celebrated. Wow. Well, yeah, I've probably been listening to it at least seven or eight. So I had never actually heard the term broadcast intrusion until the movie, but I didn't realize that that's the term that they use for the hijacking of the signal. Cause I'm familiar with some of the more infamous things like the Max Headroom incident and, and some of those, were you very familiar with that stuff before you even started on the project? Only in just kind of like peripherally, just a, like vaguely interested in 
pop culture ephemera, unsolved mysteries, you know, um, I had heard of the Max Hedgerman incident just because I'm, I'm just a kind of a junkie for unsolved mysteries to begin with, you know, and not, not even necessarily just the TV show. I, I meant like just unsolved mysteries in general. A lot of times, uh, it's just more of just a curiosity or fascination, even if it's like some bizarre conspiracy theory that I don't believe I still, it still can be like interesting in a, and almost like in the same way that you could be interested in like a, a movie story, but it wasn't something that I really knew about. I just kind of knew it was like kind of a nascent hacker culture thing that it was perhaps the, you know, sort of run DMC or the sugar Hill gang of, of hackers wouldn't be these guys. So like, yeah, but then in, and then researching that was actually kind of a joy because I'm always looking for, I, at the time, I think I was even like, really going to get in deep into some db cooper stuff and maybe trying to think of like some kind of script around that so to have another kind of unsolved mystery that i was less acquainted with to like um divest my attention into was great i'm very curious how the project came to be because i understand it was a short first so how did you get involved with it well, I was unaware of the short until after I already got involved, but I did get involved because of the script written by the the gentleman who made the short, Phil Drinkwater and Tim Woodall. The producers had sent it to me and I really responded to it and I got involved with it and then just sort of started developing it with the writers and the producers and, and just sort of trying to map some of my own interests onto onto this material. You know, and I responded to I responded to the core concept, but I also responded to the main character's life because I I did a lot of analog video editing in my youth, and um, I actually been editing since high school. I in the '90s I actually had a job making local commercials in Athens, Georgia, so I had a lot of experience sitting in rooms like the main character, like looking at SVHS decks and um, stacks of of, of umatic three quarter inch videotape. It also is is kind of like ripe for uh, a sort of a cinematic reappraisal because, you know, I sort of always saw this movie as kind of a not that by any means am I comparing it to these movies, but it kind of is in a little bit of a one way dialogue with um, the triptych of uh, Antonioni's blow up Coppola's The Conversation and, and De Palma's masterpiece Blowout which because it is about a, a person who is sort of forensically analyzing a piece of media to uncover a mystery and potentially a, a vaster conspiracy within that is kind of how was able to kind of um, map onto this, the concept and the idea of this story. Uh, one of my favorite genres, which is the sort of paranoia thriller or the conspiracy thriller of the seventies, which, you know, is a kind of movie that is not really, made a lot or in, or not even sort of even homages to it or made much but i feel like that kind of is in the ether i remember a time when i was desperate for alan j pakula content and the projection booth podcast was the only one that had a had you know i could literally like for years that was the only you're the only podcast that ever talked about alan j pakula in a real way but it's really nice now that like you know all of his movies are becoming criterion collection and, and i think there's like a lot of stuff in the ether so Hopefully, it feels like there's a zeitgeistian wave that perhaps this movie is writing uh, accidentally or subconsciously or somehow. But I've been working on it so long, and it just was kind of like an interesting thing to even just like put my brain into, even if it wasn't like urgently needed to do so. And then finally, we it all sort of came together once we sort of put the team together that was going to do it and, and, and started working with Harry Shum Jr., who plays the lead of it, and put all that together and then started location scouting in Chicago. And, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles, but I'm from Atlanta. So it was really great to kind of go to a city I'd only been to maybe once or twice before and, and really also work into the, the material as much of the actual real locations as possible. Because the Max Hedrum incident that you mentioned earlier is kind of like, this is a kind of almost, our movie is kind of like a historical fiction of that, if, if you will. You know what I mean? In the same way that, like, um, you know, a movie like uh, the the Parallax View would be like uh, the Bobby Kennedy assassination or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's kind of like a a lot of parallels to kind of ground it in a real event, but still give us room for poetic license and just to come up with cool like fake sitcoms that didn't exist before. I, I, I'm sure you are too. I'm a pop culture ephemera like fan, and I like just coming up with like what would be a good plot for a sitcom about a android stepmom <laughs> <laughs> stepbot yeah 
Yeah, it seems like that and the actual intrusions were probably super fun to shoot. For sure. A lot of the work was done by Dan Martin in his studio in South London. So in a bit, in a lot of ways, I was working with him and sort of like we had sort of worked on the design of the thing and the concept for how it was. And then he would sort of like build these things. And, you know, I mean, of course, we ended up using some of that movie proper, but the actual intrusions themselves were almost created in a way that uh, in this I was sort of getting them in a way that was a little bit less sort of more more like the character in the movie or something you know where it was like <laughs> it was like you know i was i was sort of involved like remotely with all of the shooting and everything but then at a certain point it's just like i get these weird tapes in the mail you know and <laughs> i get to put them into the into the fabric of the movie yeah. when did you actually shoot this we shot it at the end of see it was either the end of 19 or beginning of 20 so end of 19 so you dodged a bullet then when it came to the pandemic well, it was interesting because I cut the movie myself and I was already kind of like working on this movie, not leaving the house. Uh, I was already a little bit conditioned to kind of be a little bit of a recluse who just sat in my room and tinkered with the movie. So it wasn't as much of like a like a whiplash, although, it, uh, you know, of course, it, it, it was as profoundly affecting as it was for everyone. But but it was like uh, I was already kind of in that mode. The pandemic has afforded a little bit of less pressure on in terms of posts so that I was able to kind of maybe find new corners of the story that maybe I, I wouldn't have had time in another kind of situation. So trying to make use of the of the time, having something to do during the middle of last year was actually really good for my sanity. Um, I will say that having something to put my head into. Granted, it was a I was obsessed with a movie about a guy being obsessed about a movie, but <laughs> it seems a little dangerous i don't know if i've ever recovered i'm telling you mike i don't know it's like i just yeah i'm just sitting in the room with the clockwork orange metal things on my eyes <laughs> yeah tell me about the sound design because the sound is just amazing on the film i watched it with headphones on and it was great yeah it was this great guy named drew weir and i had done a lot of work uh beforehand on just kind of like you know temping in a lot of a lot of like that kind of stuff. Cause I, I like to use sound when I add it. So then it was able to, because I had already kind of done a lot of the sort of just at least sort of temporary work of like generalized sense of it. Then to get a real professional to come in and we can have a little bit more granular approach to what, it, what the, what the sound is and everything. And then of course, Benjamin Lovett's score coupled with Drew Weir's sound design, sort of bringing all that stuff and complementing each other. And I've been working with Ben, for years. I mean, even the movie you were speaking of earlier, The Signal, he did the score for that. That was a really fun process because we started that pretty early on in last, uh, pretty early on last year of just like, and it, the pandemic actually did give him time to kind of develop some of the themes and cues a little further than he would otherwise. But yeah, uh, really, well, I mean, when you make a movie that's about a guy who's sort of like investigating sounds, you kind of have a little bit of a responsibility to try to at least <laughs> not embarrass yourself with the sound of your movie, you know? So I love the, uh, the layering of all the stuff when it came to, especially the tape and how, you know, you had to have the other character come in to even find other things. That whole idea of, you know, you're blind to something until somebody else comes in and they can bring a fresh perspective. That was really nice. That's great. That's great. That's great to hear. I'm glad, I'm glad that that was effective for you. That's cool. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. I like that too. And, and it's something that I really Sometimes you lose the forest for the trees because you're so in the weeds on something that you don't take a step back to look and go, oh, it was so obvious. You know what I mean? You've gotten so deep into the, you know, rabbit hole of it that you, yeah. And I, and that's something that I've experienced, you know, sort of like, we just have some smarter person than I walk in the room and be like, hey, well, what about that? And you're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. I've been trying to figure out this, the answer to this problem for. Do you know what you're working on next? Right now, I'm just trying to, you know get this a movie out to the world and dot all the lowercase J's and cross all the T's <laughs> um, on it. And uh, no, yeah. And um, I mean, there's always stuff in the, in the oven being cooking, cooking and developing and sorts of things, but um, uh, hopefully it'll be something as enriching of an experience as this movie was, which was, which was cool. Is this your first online festival that you've uh, had a film in? Yes. 
I think it's a lot of people's. I think it seems like most of the people at the festival, it's their first time online. And it is kind of like, we're still just trying to go in like, I think this could be cool, but it's also kind of weird, right? Like, it's almost like the unspoken thing, but this is weird, right? Like, this is weird, right? <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I try to look at a silver lining of like the ability to engage with people that otherwise normally couldn't attend the festival and being able to have them sort of, and South by Southwest did a great job of sort of making it feel like it was at least exclusive. And so that in that way, you can kind of, the reach is a little further while still being a sort of a uh, small contained kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really, and I think that because we're changing the way that we sort of consume cinema of all types. Right. And I think even before the pandemic, that was, that was the case in terms of that. I mean, you know, I mean, like guys like me and I, I'm assuming guys like you, like I did go to the theater a lot growing up, but most of the movies hours, most of the hours I spent watching movies were on VHS and DVD, you know? So it is that thing of like going like, how do you, how do we kind of bridge those worlds? And, and it's even just a question of what is cinema at that point? You know, I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. That I'm sure we'll keep having for a while now. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Um, I look forward to whoever else you have on next or whatever kind of thing you spend four hours talking about again. <laughs> well, hey, if you ever want to come on the show, just reach out. I'd love to have you as a co-host sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about conspiracy thrillers. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, man. All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much. The final film I'll talk about today is Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. It's a documentary directed by friend of the podcast Kayla Janice and co-produced by friend of the podcast David Gregory, who directed Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. I spoke with them as well as the editor, Winnie Chung, about this impressive three-hour-plus look at folk horror in film. The documentary has a lot of familiar faces and names in it, like Kat Ellinger and Sam Deegan. The three of us have touched on folk horror at one point or another, especially when we've talked about paganism and the way it is infused in films like Marketa Lazarova and Valerie for Week of Wonders, and even really in Company of Wolves. We'll be talking about it again this year when we are in September when we discuss Witch Hammer. I think you'll hear how impressed I was by the film during this interview with Kayla, David, and Winnie. How do the three of you know each other? Well, David is my boss, but we were friends first, so that's how we knew each other. We've, we've known each other since when whenever Theater Bazaar came out, I guess. It was when we were editing Theater Bazaar that I first met you. Uh, I was in Montreal editing Theatre Bazaar with Doug Buck and then we hung out then. But uh, so we'd known each other over the years. And then uh, Kayla started working with me at Severin and uh, directing some of the featurettes. And she was particularly good at it. So um, she did more and more. And then this kind of grew out of that. And how about yourself, Winnie? Kayla and I met through my friends, the Enduhar twins, who used to attend screenings that Kayla curated. Oh, yeah, yeah. I used to have, like, this film club at my house called the Dirty Girls Film Club where we would just watch exploitation films when I lived in L.A. And so Courtney and Hillary, how do you say their last name? Anduhar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Courtney Anduhar, and yeah. Anduhar were introduced to me from Travis Stevens because they had done, like, production design on his films and stuff, and he knew that they'd be into exploitation films and hanging out with other girls watching those movies. So I met them that way. And then when we started looking for an editor, originally we had an editor named Benjamin Shern and he had an in injury and had to leave. And then by the time he felt better, he actually got greenlit on one of his own films that he was producing. And so I was looking for a new editor and the twins recommended that I speak to Winnie. Winnie and I didn't know each other at all. I mean, this was just like a recommendation through a third party. But then when I spoke to Winnie, it was really clear that she had a lot of good ideas, 
for the project, it was obvious that she had thought about it a lot before we spoke and about the sort of themes of the project and the things that were important to her were the things that were important to me, you know? And I think there's a lot of different editors that would have done a very different film that was much more kind of collector, like driven by the collector movie mentality and stuff. And I felt like some of the things that Winnie brought to this project were like the things I wanted. I also read Kayla's book, beforehand as well so I felt like I knew you a little bit more before you knew me which I think is is kind of like a weird place to be in but I feel like editors kind of have that like whenever you edit a movie you kind of see all the outtakes of actors and they don't know you and so that's that's always like a place that an editor's in. Kayla where did the idea of Woodland Stark and Days Bewitch come from? Woodland Stark and Days Bewitched actually started out as a short featurette for Severin Films that was supposed to be a Blu-ray extra to go with the release of Blood on Satan's Claw. And how that started was that Severin was going to be releasing the film and I was asking David about extras. And at that point, I was just an editor of extras. I had not actually like produced or been in charge of anything yet at that point. And we were having drinks. I was th- just thinking about this today and I found a photograph of it. And I was going to post it on my Instagram, but I found the photo of the very drinks that we were having when the idea was hatched for the movie. We were having drinks with Nathaniel Thompson and Howard Berger. I, I wondered if that was the occasion. Yes, I remember it well. David was telling me that we were going to be releasing this movie. A lot of the extras were going to be imported from the, there was a very recent British release of it. And so I was just like, well, why don't we do something new of our own anyway? Like just something about folk horror in general or something. And that was really how it started. It was just going to be like a 30 minute piece that was probably just going to be focused on British folk horror. And it was, you know, foregrounding Blood on Satan's Claw because that was the release that we were doing. So in the very early interviews that we did for the movie, all this stuff got cut out along the way. But at at first, a lot of the people were directly referencing Blood on Satan's Claw constantly in their interviews because that was going to be the movie it was tied to. And then it just, I handed in a two-hour rough cut or rough assembly, you know, and I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know how to cut this down. There's too much interesting stuff. And so then it was David's idea to just like keep going. It's the same way that, that Lost Soul, the Richard Stanley documentary and, and Blood and Flesh, the Al Adamson documentary started. They were both just special features originally and the subjects warranted more. We put a lot of care and attention into our featurettes as it is. But sometimes, you know, you get a subject that you think, okay, this can be a feature that stands on its own. And that's very much what happened with, with Folk Horror. So when Kayla was coming to me with sort of more and more directions that it could take rather than it being daunting. It was actually exciting because, you know, I, I, I like to find a subject that you can actually make a feature out of, you know, because the extras that we do that we put a lot of effort into they're they're still just considered extras and supplements, you know, once it seemed like this was something that could be its own beast, that was something that I, I was excited about. What year was this? Summer of 2018. How do you go from that to, no, let's make this monstrous documentary about not just folk horror in the UK, but the US, the world? You go every place with this. It really started expanding, I think, with Robert Eggers. We had spoken to Robert Eggers, who did The Witch. You know, originally we were talking about some of the New England folk horror, things like The Witch and Eyes of Fire and stuff like that. But at that time, my brain was still very much connecting the whole concept of folk horror to the British. The idea of New England and folk horror being from New England was, to me, in my mind, still connected to the British tradition, right, that was brought over. But it was like Robert Eggers mentioned something about Native American mythology in his interview. And I I think that was possibly the seed that's just that offhanded reference, I think, might have been the seed for what made me start to think about like what folk horror looked like from that from the other perspective, not the colonists perspective, but from other perspectives. And then that inevitably led to looking at indigenous cultures in Australia and how they're represented in film. And then it just, it just, yeah, ended up growing. And then it just was like looking at all these ways that films that could be interpreted as folk horror films around the world potentially challenged the ideas of a lot of the British folk horror. 
and ways they responded to it also. How are you doing all the research for this? Because it's just every time I think I'm one step ahead of the documentary, you catch right up and surpass me. Every time I'm like, oh, oh yeah, well, what about this film? Then you're right there and boom, here's five other films that you didn't think about, Mike. Well, I think a lot of it really comes from the interviewees. A lot of those people have written books, you know, or they teach classes or like they have work, they have scholarship of their own. And so it's like in order to interview a lot of those people, I had to be familiar with their work. And so I was reading books by these people. And so really it's them a lot, you know, the interviewees, they, they are the people I consider the folk horror experts, you know, more than me. So a lot of the research came from, you know, knowing a handful of people at first that I thought I needed to talk to. And then their work would sort of mention or name drop other people, you know, like their books would have bibliographies with other people I would then go to and, you know, so they were all these different scholars and historians were kind of feeding into each other with their work. A lot of it was just familiarizing my, myself with their work and then building the questions around that. So that's one of the good things, too, is like letting all those people speak for themselves and like share their work in their own voices. And people who watch the movie can now go out and look them all up and they all have like books and stuff like that. So I'm really curious about the logistics of everything as well, because like I said, this is a global project. How are you managing all of these interviews with all these different people around the world? With Severin, we're quite a small company. So, you know, we have to do things a certain way when we've got subjects that warrant interviews all over the world. Most of the time that involves hiring a local crew to interview them with our questions or whatever. I mean, on, on Blood and Flesh, I did a lot more traveling than I did on Lost Soul. I mean, Lost Soul, I traveled to France, but you know, the stuff in Australia was done by people I'd never met in Australia. And so I guess that's kind of how we did it. You know, it's how we, we shoot a lot of interviews, you know, all over, all over Europe and all over the world for our special features. And we just have people that we use for the actual, the shooting itself. And so Kayla knew or already was in touch with a few of these people. But then, you know, there are some people who are in remote places that, you know, that aren't London or, 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 or you know, Paris or whatever it may be where we have crews. So you have to find someone that can either travel to them or find somebody new who's like within the vicinity. So I would send them questions and I would often connect the camera people with the interviewee and you know, so in a sense, the camera people are also semi-producing those interviews, you know, because they are often coordinating with the person, like when they're going to arrive and, you know, certain things like that. So we would give the questions and often they'd be in different time zones. So sometimes if they're in the same time zone, we can do something where we're like on Zoom at the same time and kind of overseeing the interview live. But other times it's not possible. And so we're just kind of like giving them basic instructions for composition or, or, you know, focus or things like that. And then hoping for the best. <laughs> Do you have to worry about formats and codecs and all that kind of happy horse shit at this point? Yeah. So we, we definitely give them some basic tech specs that they have to stick to it's in the post-production where the codec issue comes up which is more to do with actually clips and sources that are coming from you know various different whether they're coming from a dvd or a tape or something like that that's when it gets complicated the actual shoot itself you know we have a basic technical specs that we want for shooting i'm very glad that winnie is on this call because the editing of the documentary is just fantastic and i'm so curious how did you guys work together to come up with this style of editing it could just be a talking head documentary but it's so much more than that there's just that beauty of the clips you talked about that and just so many clips it's incredible well i mean the style is all winning you know because it's like when i did my rough cut it was just a lot of information and it didn't really move the right way. And it was, you know, it's like you could tell there was interesting stuff there, but it felt very exhausting. And it just felt like someone lecturing at you. And somebody had told me, like, they thought that it kind of felt like a book, you know, and they were like, are you used to doing books normally? And I was like, yes. And they're like, okay, you can tell. <laughs> this feels like a book. 
you know, so Benjamin Shern was the first editor. So he took it and the parts that he did, it was like, oh my God, this is like night and day from my editing. Even if he was using the same clips that I had chosen and put in my rough cut, it somehow felt totally different when he did it. And then it was the same as Winnie, you know, when, when Winnie took over, which was like last July, I would say like the style of the movie, there were certain movies I told Winnie I liked the style of, but for the most part, Winnie just did her stuff and it was what I, what I wanted, you know? So Winnie can talk about that whole process more. I do. I do get some emails from Kayla where it's like, yeah, just do your stuff. I do think that, you know, definitely lots of conversations, but I do remember Kayla, like just us talking about like, oh, what is the total runtime for this film? And knowing that like it, it would sit somewhere around the three hour mark or even even longer than that. The first thing I thought of was like, what what can we possibly do to sustain that type of attention for the audience? And then also just thinking about like horror films in general, like if you're a horror film fan and you watch this, like there's certain things that you would want in there, like incredible sound design and and just have this piece be its its own thing and not just like reference other films. There's another documentary filmmaker out there that I absolutely love. His name is Adam Curtis. And I, I, I love his style of documentary filmmaking and, and montage editing in general. Um, and it was the international section was particularly fun because like that's when you get to t- choose two extremely disparate images, imagery, and, and make meaning out of it. It was really, really fun and a lot of work too. When I first saw the international section, it was the longest section and it's it's the deepest section in terms of, you know, how far it goes with the information. But it felt like you were actually going on a journey when I was watching that. And I was like, oh, this is really getting somewhere because it was it was like this was when I was like, this is really going to be something special because, you know, it's very different stylistically from the from the films that I do. It was it was something like you were in a way watching, you know, a folk horror movie, but it was it was taking you with it in, into all these places with the, you know, the images that uh, that accompanied everything. It was really quite special and, you know, again, very exciting when we got got to see that bit. The structure of that section was Winnie's idea because when I had done my first rough cut, it just went country by country. It was kind of like, now we're in Australia, now we're in Mexico, now we're in Brazil, now we're here, now we're here. You know, Winnie pointed out that some of the countries just didn't have as much screen time as other countries because we didn't have the same amount of interviewees or whatever, and that it felt really unbalanced that way. And so it was actually Winnie's idea to try to approach that section thematically and like kind of pick out some of the big ideas and then just talk about the films like as they related to those ideas. So you're hopping between countries. So it was a lot more complex to make sure that we were like, I I had to keep rewriting a lot of stuff in that section a lot because it was much harder to make sure the audience was going to follow, follow you, like follow what was happening and what country you're in now and to make sure they're paying attention to the right thing. There was a lot more thought that had to go into how the movies can fit together so that the audience is is getting it, you know, and I feel like we, we got that, but, you know, so that was a much more challenging thing to do, but it was Winnie's idea to structure it that way. And I think it was, it was also, it not only was it the right thing to do, but it was also really interesting because I feel like now, if you look at all the sections of the movie, they all actually have their totally different approach. You know, it's not like you're watching the second section and it's just kind of a rehash of the first section, but with different movies it's like each section feels like it has kind of its own approach to folk horror, which is interesting because that's kind of the point of a lot, what a lot of people are saying is in the movie is to like try to look at it from all those different perspectives. Winnie, were you familiar with the subject matter before you started editing this? Because you managed to use so many amazing striking images as that you hearing from Kayla, like, oh, I want the the old witch flying on the man's shoulders from V, or do you just find that and you go, oh, this will be great? I did not have that much experience, or at the very least, like Kayla said, or what she's trying to posit in, in this film is, like, there's a lot of films I watched um, as a child, like, growing up in Hong Kong, and where I didn't consider them to be folk horror films, and now I'm kind of, like, revisiting a lot of 
my own kind of like cinematic history and I'm like oh okay this could be a folk horror film and so it was definitely like a master class for me and a learning experience for me while I was working at the film at the same time um, as far as like picking imagery it would be Kayla providing a lot of guidance like it, it you, you see it in the script and then I think she also points out like very um, specifically I want this imagery in this specific section and a lot of times like I'm working around that like trying to build up to this moment that hits her so emotionally um, and then other times you know I'm I'm like oh what about this try this like I think this is what you're trying to do thematically here so what does this look like and we're kind of working off of each other like that. The epilogue I would say is an entirely Winnie's creation you know so like somebody was asking me earlier today about the last shot in the movie and they're like it's such a it's such a beautiful choice to end on that shot and they were like complimenting me and I was like that's not I was like that's Winnie you know Winnie chose that and you know that section in my rough cut I didn't have any images like I didn't that was the one section of the movie I didn't hadn't chosen any imagery for yet you know because I kept redoing all the other sections constantly. So that section, I feel like when you got to work with kind of from scratch, you know, and did such an amazing job. It was also the section I think I had the least notes on of the whole thing. You know, the one where you got to just do whatever you wanted. Yeah. So it was, it was great because like in some cases, like when he says, like, I would say a lot of times the sound up clips, like the clips where it's like you actually hear dialogue or something in the clip. A lot of those I picked because I they, I considered them like part of the script, you know, where it was like whatever they're saying in that clip is connecting these ideas. But a lot of the other imagery that's like over top of people speaking, that is the result of Winnie spending hours and hours watching 250 films in order to do this, you know, like some of those clips I just I would wouldn't have even thought of, you know, like that are just to that just totally beautifully tell the story, you know. Were there any concerns about putting together a three and a half hour documentary? Is there a market for it these days? Were there any concerns about screenings or anything? Or is it now we're in a digital world and we don't really care about that? Well, I think originally our plan was always Blu-ray, right? Like our plant Severin is a Blu-ray company. And so that was like, our plan was like releasing it on Blu-ray and anything else that happens is icing, you know, is like a bonus. But, and so at first we definitely thought like, okay, the three hour runtime doesn't matter as much for home video because people can stop it and pause it if they want to or whatever. But I also wasn't confident we would get screenings based on that running time because having been a programmer myself, I know that a three hour movie takes up the slot, the slots of two movies, you know, but a lot of those programming decisions are based on venue rentals. And so as soon as you have digital festivals, like we're having now because of COVID and there are no venue rentals, you know, then all of a sudden a three hour movie is not taking up this, the time slot of two different movies. You're not paying double rental on that venue in order to play that movie. And so once everything seemed like it was going to be digital, then I thought, well, maybe it's actually not that big of a problem if it's online, you know? And also with a lot of the online festivals I've gone to so far, you can actually stop the movie. You can pause the movie and go to the bathroom like it's live for a certain amount of time, you know, like once you start it. So it's not like you're stuck there for three hours without being allowed to get up. Like you can totally stop and go to the bathroom or do whatever. And so the digital format, I think, did make this movie more accessible to the festival circuit, I think. Even though an over three-hour movie might sound daunting on the subject, I mean, for myself and for the a few people that I've spoken to who have seen it, they it it really does fly by, and that's to do with how immersive it is and that journey that it take that it takes you on. But also in terms of distribution, you know, as soon as I saw that international section and started writing down these movies which likely have never had a home video release all of a sudden that's exciting to me as well because that's what we do at Severin we try and find you know movies that that haven't been released before so you know so all of a sudden it opens this door for other stuff that can be released with it it sounds like when you spent most of your pandemic time stuck in your house with this material and just shaping it shaping it shaping it 
do you go a little stir crazy watching all these horrific images over and over again? Or how is this for you spending your pandemic with this folk horror stuff? I thought that this was the perfect pandemic project. Having the, the time and luxury to watch these movies and, and, and res- like respect them. You know, I think a lot of times an essay movie like this, I, I kind of have to move quickly and, and even like screen through each movie once in double time, which is like no way to respect a movie at all. But during the pandemic, I, I had the time to watch the movie after uh, I was actually editing it. And I wanted to, you know, like I'm, I'm a fan as well, where after I read the script, I'm like, okay, now I have to watch, watch all of this. Kayla, you never rest. You usually have like five, six projects going at the same time. What else were you working on during the pandemic? And what are you working on now? During the pandemic, I also was writing these like fashion films for John Galliano, who's like this fashion designer. It's like the weirdest thing ever. I got contacted on Instagram by this photographer, Nick Knight. And I didn't know who, who either of them were. I didn't know who Nick Knight was. I didn't know who John Galliano was. And uh, so I had to look them up. But they wanted to do these fashion films. And they're like, we, we want like a horror thing. We need somebody to write it. And I was like, well, I don't write films i was like i write about films it's not the same thing and they're like but but we only have a week do you think you could do it <laughs> it's just like uh i guess like i'll try and so i did that and uh ended up doing like three of them so that i was doing during the pandemic and i also had like a short film that i've been working on forever about the musician reckless eric and dealing with an it's partially animated so dealing with an animator on that and then on top of that just doing my normal severin work so like folk horror is part of my severin job but then there's other extras and stuff that i was overseeing david did the tales of the uncanny movie that he directed and i co-produced that with him so that was like that was totally a pandemic project where we made like a documentary almost exclusively on zoom about the history of the horror anthology film which also started as an extra. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that, David. I'm very curious. We just wanted to do an overview of, of um, anthology horror. And then uh, the pandemic happened before we got the last couple of interviews we were going to do to cover everything. So Kayla and I put our heads together and, and we're like, well, let's let's interview more people and do it on Zoom. And then it became kind of a, a poll asking people what their favorite anthology horror films were and their favorite episodes. And then we just got more and more people. And it turned out that people it's a subject that horror people are very passionate about. You know, everybody has their favorite episodes. So that really made it into something kind of a fun project. And because it's the pandemic, you know, even though it doesn't look as good as uh as we like our documentaries to look, it was it, it it was appropriate because you know it was something where we could have people in their own homes or wherever they were, you know, with nothing else to do to talk about anthology horror. So that that came together really quite quickly and was 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 a lot of fun. And I think that the fans really liked it because they got to see everybody's house, you know. So like Joe Dante and Eli Roth and all the people, all the horror people, and it's just them in there house you know and i think for horror nerds they liked seeing like oh what monster toys did they have on their shelf what dvds do they have you know stuff like that what is the name of that documentary and when's that one available that's tales of the uncanny it's actually already out it came out at our uh, black friday sale and then it came out wide in january winnie are you working on anything new now I hadn't told Kayla this. I was planning on emailing it to you, but I'll I'll just say it. Like, I really do think that working on this has really changed the trajectory of like the the, the work that I want to do. So I'm I'm writing like a new feature. I'm also like revising the short. I raised money before the pandemic on Kickstarter and we never got to shoot it. And so as I've been editing, because like we talk a lot about like the the different tropes and it made me think about how I could tweak the characters to really fall under these tropes or challenge them a little bit. And so, yeah, hoping that uh, we get to shoot the short in the fall and I'll just keep working on the feature until until it gets somewhere. What is the future of Woodland Stark and Days Bewitched? Are there more festival screenings or do you have a, a release date for the Blu-ray already in mind? We definitely have festivals lined up. We're not allowed to say what they are because they haven't announced yet. 
but we've definitely got festivals lined up in like three different countries right now and it's working on more. And I think the plan is to go through, I mean, the festival, the genre film festival circuit goes till November pretty much. So I think it's a matter of just like seeing what the schedule ends up being based on who programs it. And then the release date of the Blu-ray will probably be determined based partially on like when it seems we've had enough festivals and, you know, <laughs> we need to move on to the next stage. Well, thank you so much guys for your time. This was wonderful talking to you. I'm so glad to see you again, uh, David and Kayla and Winnie. It was very nice to meet you. It was nice to meet you too. Yeah. Thanks Mike. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another bunch of reviews and interviews from South by Southwest 2021. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.